Good morning. This is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 8.30 a.m. Central Daylight Time. Wow, it's the 24th of September, 2019. This is episode 141 of Bitcoin And. So let's start with my son getting something stuck in his eye and dealing with the medical system. <laughs> now, he's he's good uh, for all y'all that are, you know, wondering. He's, he's good. Vision's going to be completely unaffected. We'll get into that here in a second and a whole bunch of other stuff, including kids talk Bitcoin later. But yeah, we'll start with the medical stuff. Um, Saturday afternoon sometime, my son came up and started saying that his eye was dry and itchy. And so we put drops, you know, tears, like the little uh, teardrops in that you buy in a bottle. Thought that was good. But like literally five minutes later, he's like, dude, something's wrong. Now this, you know, this little guy just, you know, turned seven a few days ago. So he's a youngin. And uh, he doesn't know what the hell's going on. We don't know what the hell's going on. So <clears throat> we, uh, you know, get some some other, uh, like, you know, visine or whatever, because at this point his eye is red. And that just stings the living piss out of him. So he now he's freaking out because his eye hurts. They they itch. You know, everything that your eye can do to piss you off is is doing exactly that to him. So, you know, we finally mom look, you know, his mom, uh, my wife looks in his eye and she's like, there's something in his eye. And I look and I'm like, holy shit, there's something there's something definitely in his eye. It's on his cornea, not like not over his pupil, thank God. Um, But it was there and it was like, you know, it was obvious. It wasn't like, oh, I think I see it. No, 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 no. It was like an object, a foreign body chilling out on top of my son's seven-year-old eyeball. And of course, both of us are like, you know, we're parents, dude. We're like freaking, you know, kind of freaking out. So I take, I'm like, look, this is beyond us. He can't blink it out. So let's, let's go to the clinic. Cause we live in a small town. We're talking sub 20,000 people. There ain't no freaking hospital here. I mean, the nearest hospital that, that we've got is about 20 minutes away, 30 minutes away in Amarillo. We do have clinics. So I took him to the clinic. They took one look at that eye and they were like, oh no, 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 no. You need to go to the emergency room. And I'm like, wow, dude, really? Yeah. So I already paid 20 bucks, you know, copay on that. So then we run up to Amarillo and go to this stand, one of these standalone uh, ERs, but not a, it wasn't a corp, one of those corporate ones. I won't go to those. This one was represented by one of the hospitals in, in the area one of the larger hospitals, <clears throat> we go in there and, and all of this includes wait time, right? You're waiting in chairs and then you're waiting in your room and blah, blah, blah. And all the time, my little guy's freaking out. This one takes like an hour and a half to complete. And the guy looks at us and say, we, we're not equipped. We're not equipped to deal with this. You got to go up to the, to the actual hospital in, in Amarillo. And I'm like, oh God. So here we go. We get there, more waiting in chairs, more waiting in the room. Finally, the guy, you know, the resident, you know, ER doc comes in. By this time, guys, it's like 1130 at night. I started this, you know, me and my son started our adventure at like 6 p.m. No dinner, right? We're Both of us, by the time we get there, the first thing I ask is, is the cafeteria open? My son's blood sugar and mine are crashing. So we got sandwiches. It, meanwhile, we walked out on a on a meal that was almost ready. And if you've been following me, you know my, that my wife knows how to cook. And that meal was not to be missed. And we both missed it. Back to the story. We're sitting in there. The resident comes in, takes one look and says, yeah, I don't know what this is, but it's definitely stuck on the cornea. And uh he gives me gives me some options. None of none of them are good. He gives me the options in front of my son, which was stupid because one was talking about using a needle to get it out. 
you're doing this in front of a seven-year-old people. Have some freaking common sense. Of course, my son starts going, you know, freaking out. As I would too. As a grown fucking man, I'd be like, you're not getting a needle anywhere close to my eye, buddy. So he freaks out. The resident figures out how he screwed up. And it's like, no, 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 no. We're not going to do anything. And then all of a sudden, I just look at the resident and I'm like, why don't we do this? Why don't we give him some antibiotic drops and maybe some numbing drops or some other type of thing to keep the pain down? And we go see a full-blown ophthalmologist on Monday. The guy looks at me and says, yes, that's what we told the ER doc. And I paused and I said, what, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, when you were at the ER, the other one, the standalone one, your doctor that was with you called us for a consult and we told him on the phone that what he needs to do is give you guys a prescription for antibiotic drops, send your ass home, and we and then schedule an ophthalmologist visit for the week because none of this shit was necessary. And I'm like, are you serious? He goes, yeah, and my guy's kind of pissed off. And when he says my guy, he's talking about the chief of the of the emergency room at that on that particular shift. And sure enough, the chief of the emergency room on that particular shift comes in and he's like, man, you don't need, you don't need to worry about any of this. It's not in his line of view. We're, we're making the right call by sending y'all home with drops. I'm going to schedule an ophthalmologist on Monday. We're going to get this shit fixed. I just don't understand why the, why our guy down there at the ER sent you all the way up here when we told him on the phone what to do. The, so everybody's safe. Everybody's fine, but we did go to, so we, well, let me finish this up yesterday. This is why there was no show yesterday. I took my son at eight 15 in the morning to the ophthalmologist and whatever was there is now gone all by itself. It's just gone. However, whatever it was, was made of metal. And the reason we know that is because it left a ring of rust on top of the cornea on top. Yeah. Well, on top of the cornea. And he's like, look, it'll either go away all by itself. Or if it gets worse, we're going to have to put him in a, in a surgical theater and we're going to have to give him some gas anesthesia so that he's compliant so that we can literally polish his eyeball with a Dremel, the medical version of a Dremel, but essentially a Dremel. And he's like, don't worry, we, we do this all the time. He goes, but quite frankly, man, it's not in his line of vision. The worst case scenario is that it, it, it all gets gone, except it leaves maybe a little bit of a mark that only another ophthalmologist, when your son's 50 years old, might look at his eye and go, you must have got something caught in your eye when you were a kid or, or a few years ago or something like that. So, with the, the, so, the, so my son is completely safe. His vision is unimpaired. He's fine. What's not fine is the gross inefficiency of this entire thing. The clinic, I can understand. Nobody's going to touch an eyeball at a, at a freaking clinic. I mean, that's just dumb, right? <clears throat> but the ER guy not listening to the chief of ER for the hospital that he's working at, even though it's at another standalone ER, that's kind of unexcusable. I mean, because now there's an extra an extra ER charge to our insurance company, and I'm going to call the insurance company and tell them that they need to dispute that because of what I just told you guys. Okay, so there's our there there was the adventure that caused the the dropping of the non drop of uh, episode 141, which should have been yesterday and wasn't. Okay, on to bigger and better things. Check this shit out. Remember how I was telling you that I live in a town that has less than 20,000 people in it? That's a real small town. It's a real small town. I love it. I don't want to live in a big town anymore. I've done that. Been there. I, I'm sick of it. Okay, so I needed to go to the store to go get whatever. <clears throat> and we, yes, we do have a grocery store. It's a United uh, it's not all that big, but it ain't, you know, it, but it's a full service. It's got a butcher. It's, you know, got produce and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we're, we're not bumpkins out here, but what I found interesting, the whole reason I'm bringing this up is that I get out of my car 
And I start walking up to the front of the grocery store and there's a group of, there's a group of, actually, let me back up. I get out of my car. I start walking up. I'm about, I don't know, four or five cars away from the entrance, you know, uh, as far as distance, you know, when you're walking through a parking lot, maybe six. And I swear to God, I I swear I hear the word Ethereum. I'm like, what? And like, I don't know. I thought maybe I left my podcast on or something when I pulled out my, my earbuds or whatever. I was thinking, I looked at my phone. I'm like, no, that ain't it. I look up and start focusing and there's about seven high school kids chilling out in the front of the store. I'm like, well, okay, so I, I must have just heard wrong. I take one more step and I hear Bitcoin. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I take another step and I hear cryptocurrency. So these guys are not seniors in high school. At best, they're sophomores. Okay, so we're talking 16, you know, yeah, yeah, right around 16. It's possible they might have even been freshmen, which puts them at, at you know, anywhere between, you know, 14 and 15. They looked really young. They were not seniors. And yes, when I walk by them, they are having a full-blown conversation in front of a grocery store in a town of 20,000 people, or 20, well, actually less, way less than 20,000. They're having a full-blown discussion in the open about cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and Ethereum. No, I did not get creepy and go, hey, let's talk about all this shit. No, no, no. I just walked right by him because why? I have shit to do and it can't always be about Bitcoin. That's why this is Bitcoin and, which stands for and other shit, right? So no, I blow right past him. By the time I come out, they're gone. But the virus is, the virus is spreading. If, if I'm looking at a group of freaking sophomores in front of a United in a town of sub-20,000 population, yeah, they're having a conversation about cryptocurrency. Chat, yeah, yeah virus, the virus is spreading. Okay, so with all that stuff aside, let's get into the morning roundup. Brandon Green is writing as of September the 20th for Bitcoin Magazine. It's, a, it's an opinion piece, and he says, the headline is, Hear Me Out. In a post-Area 51 world, Bitcoin could be our best hope for alien interaction. <clears throat> it's a blistering, oh, picture this. It's a blistering dry morning in the middle of the Nevada desert. Thousands of people line up, arms outstretched, ready to make their full-fledged spirit into the notorious yet unknown U.S. Air Force facility known as Area 51 Base. Overwhelmed by the sheer number of assailants and aversion to harming innocent people, the guards lay down their weapons <laughs> and allow these ridiculous crusaders access to the secret research taking place there. Sure enough, the Area 51 raid has worked, and alien hunters turn a corner and find themselves face-to-face -face with a real-life alien. Now what? Aliens are real, they're here, and they're ready to chat. How do you begin to communicate with something that has no commonality with you? Here's an interesting idea of where to start. <clears throat> bits are either ones or zeros designed to convey either a yes or no based on whether electrons are passed through a gate or not. Show an alien the exact structure in action and it will allow us to form the basis of communication. If one means yes, then one minus one equals yes minus yes, <clears throat> which equals no or zero. Now the aliens understand minus because there's no other operation you can put in between yes and yes to get no. Now you can demonstrate plus. 1 plus 0 equals 1, and 1 plus 1 equals 2. Now they know 2 is the next number after 1, and have begun to build the schema to use Arabic numerals to communicate via math. Rinse and repeat to build out the number system, explain multiplication division, get through calculus, etc. Math is the language of conveying facts. It's where you would have to start when communicating with an alien, uh, since even a smile or a head nod may not be innately understood from the start. English and all other languages are simply ways to add color to fact, parentheses math, and transmit value through communication. Here we go. Once aliens begin to communicate with us mere earthlings, the next obvious realization is that they see us just as that. Earthlings. We're no longer American, French, Chinese, or Russian. 
We're all members of Earth, and in our interactions with an alien species, we are simply one group. Very quickly, we will need one system of value and communication across the world, and you'd be hard-pressed to convince me that the whole world would agree to solely use the USD in order to do business with aliens. The USD is the world reserve currency and is already widely used, but people will not be satisfied for long with having to use a currency in their everyday lives that they ultimately have no control over and that has no interest in seeing them succeed no matter where they live on the planet. What I'm getting at is that there will be a need for a global currency that isn't controlled by any one entity, and we need for that currency to have already been established and for the infrastructure to already be in place. If only we had a solution. Bitcoin will be the obvious way for us to unify our world under a common value system. Bitcoin will be how we transact with aliens. There's an added boost for Bitcoin, too. It's based on those ones and zeros that would be the most basic way to communicate in the first place. Bitcoin is effectively math money and therefore would be the first choice for aliens to transact with as well. Thanks to SegWit and the Lightning Network, it would be possible not only for aliens to transact in Bitcoin locally, but also take it with them back to their own planets and create mesh Lightning Networks to trade there. Effectively, aliens would be able to treat Bitcoin in the same way as Americans treat euros, and assuming they also have a digital monetary system equal to Bitcoin, we might be able to do the same with their currency. This is all assuming these aliens are not adversarial creatures. Should they want war, we'd have to figure out ways to not only physically protect ourselves, but also to economically protect ourselves. Let's assume this advanced civilization cracked quantum computing with a few keystrokes they could take down segments of the legacy financial system. The cryptography protecting it is weak in some places and allows for many points of failure. Bitcoin, on the other hand, would presumably be nimble enough to emergency hard fork into a quantum safe algorithm and potentially emerge relatively unscathed, score another one for Bitcoin. If the aliens are conquerors in the same way the Nazis were during World War II, you could also presume they'd want to capture items of value and take them for themselves. They wouldn't be able to capture Bitcoin, though. Besides the fact that a desperate earthling could quickly transfer his or her Bitcoin instantly anywhere else if faced with imminent peril... Aliens also wouldn't really know where to look for the Bitcoin. And a person could even be walking around with a brain wallet and really make the Bitcoin unconfiscatable. Bitcoin would be the ultimate protection of wealth from invaders, aliens, or otherwise. So I'm not saying that during Area 51 that bleh. so I'm not saying that during the Area 51 raid, a group of millennials and Gen Zers will actually muster the courage to rush our industrial military complex. I'm not saying if they do, they will come face to face with our galactic brethren. All I'm saying is that if both of those things happened, it would be yet another potential catalyst for Bitcoin to emerge as a global monetary system. So that's just a lot of fun. I mean, it is. It's, there's some some problems there, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, this one is is not so much fun. Um, I came. Across, I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'm going to read you part of it so that you can understand what we're up against and the language being used as uh, as weaponry rather than uh, conveying facts. This is a USA Today article that is written by Ken Fisher and says. Will America's massive debt really doom us? With a question mark. Now, there's a some I can't remember the name of the law, but there's some kind of law that says it, any headline that ends with a question mark can be answered with no. Okay, uh, this one that this one doesn't work for that law. Okay, this one this one tears that law apart. Let me just start reading this to you so you can understand what's going on. America's massive debt will doom us. That's common wisdom, but wrong. In Manhattan, a giant clock displays not only the total, almost $23 trillion for now, but your share ticking up every second. Pundits say it's trouble. But U.S. debt fears have lurked forever, and those troubles are no closer now than decades ago. In some ways, they're further off. Here's how to see that using tools that show when debt truly becomes problematic. The $23 trillion total seems jaw-dropping, but says little about what really matters. How readily Uncle Sam can pay the piper. Pundits cite our debt-to-GDP ratio as evidence of a debt addiction. With $21 trillion of GDP, that ratio is 103%, lower than Italy's and Japan's, but higher than Germany's and Britain's. Debt-topping GDP sounds dire, but that's misleading. The federal government is... And it goes on like this. 
that goes on like that. It ends this, in fact, it ends this paragraph by saying, as an asset and a liability, it effectively cancels out. Otherwise, net outstanding public debt is $16.7 trillion, 76% of GDP. That's still unimportant. Listen to the way they're doing this. At this point, USA Today has just weaponized words so that you remain stupid because all of this is not good. Yeah, I mean, they're right insofar as debt fears have always been here, but at one point or another, this shit cannot continue. It just can't. And USA Today has been has acted in a very unethical way by putting this out, uh, using words as weaponry to stupidize the American public. Okay, let's get back into uh, some some uh, Bitcoin stuff. <clears throat> Brave new coins, Masayuki Tashiro is writing on September the twenty second. Meet Monocoin, Japan's cryptocurrency meme. In the West, the popular Dogecoin cryptocurrency rose to fame on the back of a meme. In Japan, Monocoin fulfills the same role. Japan's native currency, Monocoin, surged earlier this month, recording to a day over day or recording a day over day increase of 17% on September the 14th. Mona had rebounded sharply in oversold conditions after hitting fresh lows since August. The latest report issued by the Japan Virtual Currency Exchange Association stated that the Japanese market was starting to buy Mona again. Monacoin was Japan's first native cryptocurrency. It was developed in 2014 by an anonymous developer calling themselves Mr. Watanabe. The pseudonym is thought to be uh, to pay homage to Satoshi Nakamoto. Watanabe is a common Japanese surname and has its root in the Ferryman's Guild of Medieval Times. Monacoin is a popular cryptocurrency amongst Japanese traders because multiple cryptocurrency exchanges list Mona in Japan and because of what the coin represents. Monacoin is a fork of Litecoin. Like Dogecoin, it is based on a popular internet meme. Monacoin represents Mona, an ASCII cat from the late 1990s that was very popular in Japan. Mona is the native cryptocurrency of the proof-of-work Monacoin platform. Monacoin's coin supply is 105 million, and new blocks are processed every 1.5 minutes, which is faster than Litecoin's 2.5, and much faster than Bitcoin's 10. The fast block speeds enable low transaction cost and make it very efficient means of uh, a very efficient means of moving between crypto assets and the Japanese yen, where on ramping to and from exchanges. Monacoin reached a peak of $19.75 on December the 6th. 2017 during the altcoin boom market. Mona is an ASCII resistant and unlike many proof of work cryptocurrencies, it can still be mined by individual miners using CPUs. Jesus. Despite its mysterious origins, the coin has a strong community of developers who have added support for SegWit and Lightning, ensuring the coin stays relevant in a changing marketplace. Over $350,000 worth of Mona is traded on a daily basis, blah, 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 Okay, because that's sort of, they're sort of shilling the coin here. And you know me, I'm not a shit coiner. I'm going to get to why I'm telling you all this in in in. In, in a second. But this ends off by saying Japan prides itself on producing native goods and culture, and therefore Monocoin is thought of with great fondness by local cryptocurrency traders. So, okay. It's I thought this was important to bring to you because where we have Dogecoin in the West as our favorite meme coin, because it was the, it, it has network effects. I'm sorry. As a shit coin, Dogecoin is is the second most important network effect coin that I think there actually is. Because it's not lying about anything like like Ethereum lies about everything. Like all these other coins lie about all kinds of shit. Dogecoin is what it is, and we know know what it is. We know what to expect from it. But its network effect came from the fact that it was the meme coin. Okay, so this is Japan's meme coin. They respect Monocoin like we, or they don't, maybe not respect it. They adore, and put that in quotations, they adore Monacoin, sort of like we adore Dogecoin. That's why I report on Dogecoin in the vitals, because Dogecoin is fun. It's a, it's a breath away from all the serious bullshit that we're always having to deal with all the time, right? So I think it's important to maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe it's a chance to connect visually because most of us don't know how to speak Japanese. My wife does. 
in case you didn't know that. She, she's not Asian, but she does know how to speak Japanese. She actually sounds like a damn near native. It's really kind of kind of odd. In either event, we can visually connect with uh, with our, like our, our Japanese counterparts without actually using language. By simply maybe having like a show of respect for Monocoin insofar as the as memes. It's gotta be memes. It can't be like, you know, something where we think it's all serious because they probably don't take it seriously either. But it's just memes are really important. And they are very important in this space because it's a it one, it's a pressure release valve, you know, because it's humorous. It helps us maintain a good sense of humor, but also there's the real possibility of being able to use memeage to communicate. And I think it's important to at least keep it in mind because you never know, we might be having full conversations with memes or if not us, maybe my kids, they might be having full meme conversations in the future. I don't know. Anyway, I thought it was fun. Wanted to bring that one to you. This one gets a little bit more serious. This is Tech Spot Isaiah Mayerson writing on February the second. Now, this is clearly this is a really old one, but you know it's it's something that that we need to to if we've we need to remember this. Okay, analyst says Nvidia lied about its cryptocurrency earnings to avoid stock crash. Wow, you know, I mean, just having these people lie all the time sucks. <clears throat> Quote, we think NVIDIA generated $1.95 billion in total revenue related to crypto blockchain, said Royal Bank of Canada capital market analyst Mitch Steves. Quote, this compares to company the company's statement that it generated around $602 million over the same time period. End quote. NVIDIA had been hit hard by the cryptocurrency crash, possibly worse than any other company. In November, their stock dropped 19%. In December, it plummeted 50%. Mm. all because of excess inventory of the Pascal cards they produced to satisfy miners. I'm going to stop right there. Remember, this is written in 2019. They're not talking about Bitcoin miners. They're talking about whoever is still able to mine their shitcoin on a GPU because that's the Pascal card that they have. When alts died, NVIDIA got hit really hard because apparently NVIDIA is uninterested in entering the ASICs market and they really should in either event continuing on. Presently, their stock is about 50% down while it was... Presently, their stock is about 50% down more than it was only a few months ago when it uh, peaked at $292 a share during September 2018. So while the stock is holding on and bounced back a bit during January, the steep falls are a strong incentive for NVIDIA to mask large fluctuations in revenue. According to Steve's measuring the hash rate and calculating the volume of Ethereum and other cryptocurrencies mined from April 2017 to July 2018 reveals that roughly $2.75 billion should have been generated in sales. NVIDIA should have captured about three quarters of that with AMD getting the rest. AMD's earnings forecast released last Tuesday backs the idea up. They expect revenue of $1.25 billion, 24% lower than this time last year. NVIDIA's forecast was 2.7 billion and oh uh, but they recently dropped to 2.2 billion prompting their most recent stock price troubles admittedly it would be surprising to see nvidia miss revenue expectations for a single quarter by 500 million because of the crypto hangover well crypto sales only generated 600 million to begin with steves hasn't suggested exactly how nvidia is masking its revenue which is something of a linchpin While they obviously cannot lie to shareholders' faces, it might be possible to conceal the revenue by quickly funneling it into other projects or having third parties such as OEMs pay for the GPU boards over a longer period. If Pascal did conceal their total revenue, then that does bode badly for future profits, as the non-crypto market would be substantially smaller than is currently believed. Of course, this is a very bold claim, so entertain it as more of an interesting possibility than a likelihood. So way back in February of this year, NVIDIA's maybe lying about, you know, about their revenue. I thought that was interesting. And and also, you know, keep in mind, they're, you know, NVIDIA can only compete in the shitcoin market. They cannot compete in the Bitcoin market because nobody in their right mind is using GPUs like Pascal boards to mine Bitcoin. It's It's like an ASIC game. So 
they're Nvidia's treading on on really thin ice if they think that they're going to have sustainability in the shitcoin market because as we're seeing, there's shitcoins are being delisted. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. I wouldn't want to be in Nvidia's shoes right now, nor would I want to be in Kick's shoes right now. Mir Olbark and Hagar Ravit is writing as of yesterday for C-Tech that Kick considers shutting down messaging app. <laughs> Jesus. Waterloo, Ontario-based Kick Interactive Inc., the developer of popular mobile messaging app Kick, is considering shutting down its app, according to two people familiar with the matter who spoke with Calculist on condition of anonymity. The company is moving all of the app's users to alternative platforms, they said. The 70 employees of Kick's Israeli cryptocurrency subsidiary Kin received layoff notices Monday though some will be offered the option to transfer to a new company that is based on the same technology, they added. Kick was founded in 2019 by Serial, or sorry, Serial, several Canadian students. The app was released in 2010, gaining 1 million users within two weeks, eventually reaching 300 million users at its peak. Investors include China-based Tencent Holdings Limited, Union Square Ventures, and Spark Capital. After several investment rounds, the latest of them, according to a $1 billion valuation, Kick decided to hold an initial coin offering, shitcoin, in September of 2017, raising $98 million. Kick released its virtual token Kin in 2018 with the aim of creating a decentralized digital service ecosystem for companies that operate online. Despite Kin's initial success, the token lost the majority of its value. Today is trading at, get this, $0.000012. That's four zeros and then a one two. Ken's Israeli operation is based on the company's January 2017 acquisition of the Tel Aviv-based communication company's Rounds Entertainment Limited. The financial details of the deal were not disclosed, but reported at the time to be valued at $60 million to $80 million in June. The United States Securities and Exchange Commission sued Kick, claiming its ICO was illegal as it did not regulate the offering. The SEC also claimed that the ICO was intended to fund the company's messaging aim, messaging aim in contrast to Kick's stated aim, and thus that Kick did not provide investors with the entire picture during the offering. Both Kick and Ken have yet to reply to a request for comment. Until this next one that comes up. This is Coindesk's William Foxley writing sometime this morning. In drunken text, Kick CEO threatens to quit, quote, I'm not going to jail for this. <laughs> God, I love it. Okay. Kick CEO Ted Livingston appears to be close to quitting the social messaging startup he founded in 2009 following News Monday that the app is shutting down. In a misdirected message sent seemingly under the influence of alcohol, Livingston said he intends to leave the project, citing fears about its ongoing battles with U.S. regulators. Quote, Will, I know I've been drinking, but this ain't the drink talking I'm fed up with this shit, end quote, he wrote. The planned recipient of Livingston's message is unclear, although in the text it's suggested to be kick board member William Moyager. Moyager cannot be reached for comment. Quote, we'll talk more in the morning about replacement, but I quit, end quote, he said, adding, quote, I have my ticket. I'm not going to jail for this, end quote. I have my ticket. He's a shit coiner, people. This is me talking. He's a shitcoiner. This is what shitcoiners do. Eventually, they're going to exit scam. They're going to take your money and leave you with giant bags that you think are filled with value. They're not. They're filled with shitcoin. He's got your money. That's the ticket that he's talking about. If you don't, if you think he's talking about something else, I got bridges to sell your ass. Continuing on, Livingston deleted the message after it was received by this reporter, who is also named Will. When asked to clarify his comments, Livingston replied, no comment. Livingston appeared to suggest that there is ongoing talk as to who would continue operations following his departure. The latest message shows a glaring division between Kick's public language regarding the case and the palpable behind-the-scenes concern. The uh, uh, sorry, Ontario-based Kick has been in a protracted battle with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. 
Uh, and that goes on. That's just what we were talking about in the last story. But earlier Monday, Kick announced the regulatory proceedings had taken their toll on the company and that its flagship messaging service would be shut down. Livingston announced that Kick plans to downsize to 19 core developers to continue the development of Kick's native token kin. Wow. Dude. I mean, this was done in 2009. They get into shit coinery full on. And the hammer gets put down on him and homeboy drunk tweets or texts somebody and accidentally texts this, you know, this particular, this particular reporter. So apparently I would imagine that that means that William Foxley, his cell number or whatever messaging app is, this is being used on because they didn't state that, uh, that, uh, Ted Livingston to make sure this is it Ted. Yeah. Ted. Well, Livingston um, had written to him before and may have been trying to text somebody else named Will, right? But it went to a reporter. So when you're drunk texting, if if you're a shit coiner as a CEO or CTO of some company that is ripping people off and taking their money and turning it into giant bags of crap, uh, if you get hammered, make sure you're not texting about your intentions to exit scam everybody to a coin desk reporter. Probably not the best idea in the world, right guys? Right? 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 Uh let's see. Okay. SEC charges fantasy market founder with orchestrating a fraudulent ICO. Uh, really? Coin Telegraph's Liam Frost is writing this morning. The United States SEC has charged Jonathan C. Lucas, the founder of adult entertainment marketplace Fantasy Market, with orchestrating a fraudulent initial coin offering. According to the SEC complaint published on September the 23rd, Lucas received around 63000 in cryptocurrency from more than 100 investors through the fraudulent offer and sale of unregistered digital securities of Fantasy Market. The document states, as alleged in the complaint, Lucas made numerous materially false statements in a white paper and online to induce investors to participate in the ICO. Among other alleged misstatements, Lucas claimed that a working beta version of the company's adult entertainment platform existed when one did not. Present presented a fictitious management team and misrepresented his own experience. After garnering media attention over investor complaints, the, the complaint states Lucas returned the funds raised to investors. The SEC's lawsuit was filed in the Manhattan Federal District Court. It is stated that Lucas has violated several securities laws related to counter, uh, countering fraud. It is also noted that Lucas has consented without admitting or denying the allegations in the complaint and was ordered to pay a civil penalty of $15,000. As Cointelegraph reported recently, Canadian social media company Kick decided to downsize and shut down its messenger due to the firm's need to manage resources in a legal battle with said SEC. Okay, so you can do whatever you want as long as you have enough money in your wallet to pay off the SEC. Goddamn fraud all by itself. Sorry. But anybody who thinks that the SEC is on our side is freaking fooling themselves. Apparently, they're, they've just made, they've been able to outfit one floor of their offices with Keurig cups for the next year with that 15000 No one's going to jail. Sorry. As a Bitcoiner, I'm not all about government, but in this, you know, in these cases where it's just flagrant fraud, Somebody needs to get bitch slapped. Now, if you let me go out and, you know, or the rest of us go out, find these people and tar and feather them, we'd probably just keep it in our own, you know, in our own hands. But you're not going to allow that. You'll arrest us for assault. So if you guys want to assault them, go right ahead. But this whole slap on the wrist crap, no, no, sorry. Okay, so here's, here's one from Colin Harper from Bitcoin Magazine. He's riding with 100% asset insurance. Bitcoin custody solution appeals for trust. This is this morning. A newcomer, a cumber, a cucumber to the Bitcoin investment services. No, I'm just kidding. A newcomer to the Bitcoin investment services scene is offering two for one protection in the form of custody and fully backed insurance. Knox, a dual nod to the mystic U.S. military base Fort Knox, and as evidenced by the value zero with a slash through it, the hexadecimal literals used in coding, launched its custody solution today. This custody comes with 100% deposit insurance, something that CEO Alex Daskalov said is a very first for the fledgling industry of regulated-grade Bitcoin custody. Quote, 
We don't see anywhere where someone can expect 100% coverage. To this day, we have not seen properly insured custody. There's a lot of misinformation that exists, and in many cases, we feel that other providers don't adequately protect investors, end quote. Daskalov founded Knox after noting this gap in the market. A Bitcoin, quote, OG himself, he still ascribes to the off-uttered maximum, maxim, not your keys, not your coins. He also came to realize that for institutions, self-custody would never be a viable option. Quote, second best thing you can do if you're not going to hold your private keys is that you should have the right to have a full value of the asset insured, end quote. At launch, Knox will open to accredited individuals or institutions in Canada, the U.S., U.K., E.U., and Asia. Leading up to this launch, the company accrued $6.2 million in funding from initialized Inova and Fidelity Investments Canada, among others. Daskalov told us over the phone that the company's combo custody insurance plans can be tailored to each client's particular needs. For example, while some clients may want 100% asset protection, others may only want 20, 40, or 60% protection. They'll also receive varying rates depending on how much they want to custody and the details of their business model. Daskalov said that the company can offer insurance coverage for as low as 1% of the custodied value. Just as there's a sliding scale for the amount of fee on the client side, insurers are assigned to tiers of coverage as well. Knox's insurance tower, as Daskalov calls it, accommodates a variety of carriers with different risk appetites. Its insurance broker, Marsh, matches Knox with insurance based on how much it is willing to cover. Some, is in, uh, some for instance, might be comfortable with 10 to $50 million, while others will go as high as $100 million. These insurance companies will issue written attestations that they are willing to cover individual deposits up to these thresholds. Having done their technical homework to test and vet Knox's solutions, these attestations have the added benefit of ensuring customers that they are not only getting robust custody, but that they are also getting it at a good price. Quote, the proof is in the pudding. If you really want the safest solution, you ought to have the cheapest insurance rate, and we're willing to fight in a free market context to say we have a solution so safe that one can get a massive insurance capacity to back it. If someone has the safest solution, the institution ought not have to do technical due diligence to understand it. They ought to be able to rely on a price signal coming from the insurance market to inform them that this is safe or that someone has done the technical due diligence to take on the risk themselves, end quote. Okay, so this is like FDIC for your Bitcoin, okay? Uh, Now, here's the interesting part. Going back up, to the top of this thing, I want to read this again because it's going to come important. It's going to become important in the next segment. A Bitcoin OG himself, Daskalov ascribes to the oft-uttered maximum: "Not your keys, not your coins." Now remember, this whole business that he's that he's done is literally: "We've got your keys, we've got your coins." Now keep that in mind when I read you this uh, this tweet. I retweet, this is Fib, uh, at T-H-I-B-M, who's part of this whole thing, okay? And um, he tweets out, let's see, oh yeah, here it is. News is out, very excited to launch Knox Custody after many months of hard work with at Daskalov and the entire Knox team. And then Francis Polio says, congrats, out of curiosity, wasn't this launched last year or maybe it wasn't official yet when I learned about it. Thib writes back, thanks. Indeed, we've been operational for over 18 months now. You were one of the few who were were in the know. Today, we're publicly announcing our insured custody for Bitcoin. Francis writes back, cool. Thib writes back, and this is the important part. Still believe everyone should hold their own keys. For institution, their fiduciary duties being a different reality. So even in the midst of saying our business model is literally we have your keys, we have your coins, these guys, this dude and Daskalov are still telling people, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So they're they're trying to get people to understand it's like unless you're an institution, you've got hundreds of millions of dollars on the line then you damn well better be holding your own keys. You don't need to be coming to us. I find to, uh, frankly, I find that, that, that type of ethic really refreshing. Okay. So moving on, let's see, where are we at here? Uh, 
Mm, nope. Yeah, this one. Colin Harper writing for Bitcoin Magazine. Bottle Pay raises $2 million to expand Lightning Network tips across the web. Aha, this is September the 23rd. Uh, Block Matrix, the company behind social media Bitcoin tipping service Bottle Pay, just received a fresh round of funding. Company, the company has come off a two million seed round, or sorry, uh, seed funding round at a time when the Lightning Network, the second layer Bitcoin payment network leveraged by Bottle Pay, continues to enjoy steady growth. A Bottle Pay press release shared with Bitcoin Magazine noted that the Lightning Network currently supports over 10,000 nodes, with 800 BTC and liquidity spread across some 35,000 channels. Private channels it adds are not included in this figure and would likely increase this figure. Because of the Lightning Network's promising growth and the company's tinkering with other cryptocurrencies and blockchain solutions, Bottle Pay will remain a Bitcoin-only product, according to founder Pete Cheney. C-H-E-Y-N-E. Chain? Cheen? I don't know. I hope I'm just... I hope I'm not offending this Peter by butchering his last name over and over, so I'm just going to stop as in, in a motion of respect. Quote, there is simply no other candidate... We have been patiently waiting for a Bitcoin Layer 2 solution to reach a level of maturity that would provide the foundations for us to create Bottle Pay. The potential created by the Lightning Network is huge. It's allowing us to fully unleash the potential of Bitcoin and get the technology in the hands of everyone. Bottle Pay, which launched three months ago, is growing in step with the technology that its service is built on, boasting 100% growth month over month since launching. Its web app facilitates Lightning Network micropayments through social media or chat services, much like its first-to-market competitor, Tippin.me, which is currently only available on Twitter. By contrast, Bottle Pay is available on Twitter, GitHub, Telegram, Reddit, Instagram, among other platforms. Bottle Pay service is, more, is a more buttoned-up version of the community-created tipping bots that populate forums like Reddit. For its part, Bottle Pay hopes to create an easy tipping rail for average and veteran Bitcoin users alike with an aim to open up the services tools to developers so that it can be rolled out on as many services as possible. Quote, we believe that people with an inspiring vision can change the world for better. <clears throat> Sorry, Bottle Pay facilitates new and easy ways for our users to exchange value between each other and will provide the means for creators to develop on our tech stack. Overall, our goal is to deliver huge social as well as economic value through the technology we are creating, said Peter O'Donohue, head of operations and co-founder at Bottle Pay. So nice, right? Totally awesome. I'm uh, going to do that one. Nope, I'm not going to do that one. And we're almost done. Let's see. Yeah, we're going to go ahead and end the morning roundup since it's going a little long. Uh, looks like uh, vitals are next. Your vital statistics brought to you, as always, by BitInfoCharts.com. BitInfoCharts, where you find information about Bitcoin. Bitcoin's price right now, oh God, it's it's gone even lower. 9,620. We got whales swimming in the ocean, guys. Don't freak out. You never know. Ansel Lindner's uh, call to 84, 8,500 may be in play. I don't know. I'm kind of with Ansel at this point. Let's just go ahead and crash this son of a bitch so that all the rest of the altcoins will just freaking die. I'm so sick of this. We're in alt season. We're in alt. I don't care about your alt season. All of your bags are filled with crap. Okay. Bitcoin's price is 9620 Well, it looks like we have a really tight rate, uh, trading range. The highs that hit BTC at uh, 9628 The low is going to be over at Bitstamp at 9607 325,000 transactions have been made over the last 24 hours with 13,500 transactions uh, on average per hour or average on hour, whatever. I'm, I haven't had enough coffee. 824,000 BTC have been sent over the last 24 hours with an average being sent per hour of 35,000. Average transaction value is 2.5 BTC, while the median transaction value is 0, 0.04 BTC or $382. Wow, that's about 80 bucks more than, than I normally like to see. Block time is, is high at 10 minutes, 50 seconds. Wow, I haven't seen it this high in a while. Uh, 0.26 BTC have been taken per fees, uh, in fees per block and 35 BTC have been taken in fees over the last 24 hours. 
The hash rate has dived by 20% in the last 24 hours, and we're back to 74 exahashes per second. Wow. This is weird, man. This is just weird. The last GitHub commit was sometime yesterday. Ethereum is at 195. Bcash is at 286. Litecoin is at 65 and a half. BSV is at 110. Ethereum Classic is at 5.76. Dogecoin is back to 0.0025. 27,000 transactions on Doge. No, no, that's not going to do it. But Ethereum Classic has a thousand more transactions than Litecoin does. But everybody's getting hammered. I hope they get hammered to death. Hold on. I I do want to check everybody's hash rate in, in my stack, the ones that I just read you. All the hash rates across the board have lost. Bitcoin's lost the most. Ethereum's lost the least. But everybody's lost, you know, either in... Yeah, in in single digits uh, as far as percent is concerned. So, wonder what's going on there. That's really strange. Uh, mempool. We are seven blocks deep in the mempool with right around thirteen thousand unconfirmed transactions. I am seeing a block that was done about an hour ago that is only half full, about five hundred and seventy-one. Uh, let's see. Yeah, yeah, five hundred and seventy-one. Oh man, hold on. Yeah. This is weird. The number the numbers are being very very weird. I mean, I'm just looking I'm trying to f- figure this one out. Yeah, it's going to be strange. Anyway, yeah, it's only half full. All the rest of them seem to be full. But like I said, we're 7 blocks deep, 13,000 unconfirmed transactions. Uh I am going to put up lightning stats for the first time, see how this one goes. The number of nodes has increased uh by 3.13% to 9,981. If it's a private node or a private channel, these things are not going to be seen. They got to be public for the network to to see them. So be aware, there's most more likely more than nine thousand nine hundred eighty-one nodes. The number of channels has decreased by one point two percent to thirty-six thousand channels. Network capacity has decreased two percent to eight million. Yeah, right around eight million dollars U.S. The nodes with active channels have increased 0.35% to 5,970. New nodes over the last 24 hours have decreased by 18% to 9. So I, I, the way that I read this is that on a day-over-day basis, there's a certain amount of nodes that get put, uh, put on the network. So over this last 24 hours, we are 18.18% down from the average. So only nine new nodes have been added over the last day. New channels over over that same period have also decreased quite substantially by 38.76%. So only 109 new channels got added today. So that's the way I'm reading it. If you know that I'm reading it wrong, um, please tell me. But this is 1ml.com. I am not afraid for somebody to say, dude, you totally blew that. That's not what new channels and new nodes in the last 24 hours means. Okay, totally fine with that. All right. Uh, Yeah. Anyway, so there's your vital statistics. All right. Song is guess what? That's right. You're going to listen to it one more time. Caravan. This time it's one of the original Duke Ellington and his orchestra recordings. You cannot you cannot, you cannot, or I can't, present this song and talk about it the way that I've talked about it without actually giving you a recording of the dude that brought this thing to life. Now, he wrote this with his, with his uh, trombonist. Uh, I, the, name, the name escapes me, so he didn't write it all by himself. Clearly, you know, he had help. And in this case, it was from his trombonist. In either event... This is one of the er earlier recordings of uh, Duke Ellington and his orchestra. And and even though, even though it was recorded, God, it's got to be in the late 30s, you know, something like that. Even though it was recorded way back then, this recording is not thin. This actually has some some pretty good sound. It's got some pretty good audio. So uh, go ahead and enjoy Caravan for the last time. I promise, promise you, no more Caravan. But when we're looking at the way people play this song, it's important to look, especially something as classic as Caravan, with as deep roots as as Caravan has. And as as much as that song 
kind of changed the landscape and it went from big band sound into getting into the modern era of jazz. It, it's an important song, so it's important to see its roots, how it's developed, and how it's played in completely different ways.
Daily Train Wrecked is brought to you by at Mark underscore Dow. This is a gentleman that has a blue check mark and several tens of thousands of followers. He's retweeting Twitter Safety at Twitter Safety, where they say, We're always updating our rules based on how online behaviors change. Today, we're expanding our policies to prohibit financial scams. Read more at link. Mark Dow says, rip Bitcoin. Oh, yeah, Mark, that'll kill it. That's going to kill Bitcoin. Yeah, because reasons. Jeez, for the love of God. After 350 citations or obituaries of Bitcoin, this is it? This what does Bitcoin in? You know, this is why I do daily train wrecks so that I, you know, can let you guys know some of the just absolute asinine bullshit that goes on in this space. People have like the wrong idea about almost everything. And if they got, if Mark has this idea about Bitcoin, what else is he wrong about? That's scary. This is a this is a dude that people listen to for investment advice and other things. And wow, I've just never never seen this level of of head up the assness that I'm seeing right here. Come on, really? Bitcoin is gonna die because I say Bitcoin in a tweet and all of a sudden uh all of a sudden uh, it's gonna get shit canned. No. Also, I want Mark to understand something. Mark, if you're listening, and I know you're not because you don't give a shit about me, and that's fine. I do want to thank you for being the daily train wrecked for today's podcast, but you might want to look at Jack and at SQ Crypto's view on Bitcoin before saying things like this, because either you are trolling on purpose or you are so freaking clueless that you have no idea what's going on. Rip altcoins, that would have been the thing to say, and you would have been paraded, but now you're berated. So anyway, uh, I, I am going to to add to, to, to today's daily train wrecked with Twitter themselves, because a couple of days ago, they tweet, they didn't tweet, but they've, they've, they're doing this. This comes up as a warning or like not a warning, but a message from Twitter. When you click on a tweet that has been hidden by something, let me just read you, read you what, what's going on here. Uh, so you'll understand in bold, it comes up. Some replies were hidden by the tweet author. And then the paragraph states to give people more control over the conversations they start Twitter is testing a feature in a limited set of countries that lets tweet authors hide replies to their tweets. Hidden replies are moved to a separate page, which you can view by tapping the hidden reply icon on the tweet. Learn more. So you just chopped out one of the legs of, of, of Twitter because it's a public platform. I mean, if I say something stupid, I might delete the tweet, but I'm un, I should be unable to hide the stuff that people say. If I say something stupid and somebody calls me on it, I should not be able to hide that tweet. So congratulations, Twitter. You're not going to kill Bitcoin because your financial policy, but you, you still did something stupid with this. I'm sorry. But anyway, there's your twin smoldering piles over there in the corner. Okay, I found a font, a font, a, a veritable font of terrible dad jokes. It's a Twitter account. It's at Dad Says Jokes, and it's just a plethora, a plethora of bad, terrible jokes. Like this one here. I went into a pet shop and asked for 12 bees. The shopkeeper counted out 13 and handed them over. You've given me one too many, I said. Oh, that one's a freebie. Yes, sir. That's a terrible joke right there. 
That's horrible. But the best part about this is finding a source for bad jokes. If I had to Google horrible jokes and find the same damn pages one more freaking time, I was going to go nuts. If you guys want to send me terrible jokes, I love it when I get stuff from you guys. I mean, whether it's a daily train wreck, whether it's a terrible joke, if it's a news story, anything, you know, an announcement. I mean, I'll put it up. I, I, I want to help the whole damn community. So I, I want to showcase stuff. I want to showcase you. That's what I want to showcase. I want to showcase you. So um, send me your bad jokes. Send me your terrible, horrible downtrodden jokes and I will I will see about putting them on the air. Also, I am always in search of a daily train wreck and because I really don't think it's healthy to stay glued to Twitter 24 hours a day, there's probably several train wrecks that are going by that I'm unaware of. Please, if you catch them, send them to me. I would I would be be much honored to do that. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and get into the out. And I want to remind you at the head of the show, uh, I was talking about a group of high school kids, probably sophomores, talking about Bitcoin. Also, we're talking about Ethereum. They use the words Ethereum and cryptocurrency. And I just didn't have the heart to go over to them and say, it's all shitcoinery. If it's not Bitcoin, it's shitcoin. The motto of the Taco Blabs. So um, if... It's probably not the best idea to go pester somebody, especially if you're older, you know, maybe, but I'm, you know, I I wanted to go talk to him. I really did. But like I said, man, I had shit to do and it would be kind of creepy because I'm, I'm way older. I'm way older than a sophomore. I'm not going to go engage a group of sophomore kids. Okay. It's just not going to fucking happen. It's just that if I, if that needs to happen, then I'm, I'm thinking that because I saw that it may be time to go ahead and start a Bitcoin meetup group here in the very town that I live in. So I'm not exactly sure how to do that, uh, but I'm thinking about it because I got seven kids talking about Bitcoin in front of a United in a sub 20,000 person population town. That's gotta be worth something. I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.